Hey, Whoreheads, before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you all know that we just launched our official Horrifying My Friends Patreon. As you can guess, we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and passion into creating the pod. So if you love us and want to support us, now you can. We've got three tiers that you get different, exclusive perks. For just $1 a month, you can simply show your support and get episodes early. For $3 a month, you get an exclusive live commentary episode each month, as well as a specially curated Spotify playlist by yours truly. And for $6 a month, you get double the exclusive live commentaries, early access to episodes, a playlist, and tons of bonus content like Captain Creature Reviews, and a special Grindhouse podcast hosted by Horror Host Trav. Okay, that's our pitch. We're grateful for whatever support you can send our way, but regardless, we will happily keep bringing you our weekly free episodes. So thank you as always, and without further ado, let's get creepy. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for? If not for shooting. I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. You know, some things you gotta do. Don't mean you have to like it. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'm your number one fan. Let her get away, mommy. Welcome to another edition of Horrifying My Friends. Joining you as always is horse host Travis and producer Kate. Hello. And making his return to the show is Joshua Heath. Glad to be back. Thank you for joining us on this special All Robin All the Time episode <laughs> where we break down Robin's albums chronologically starting with the 80s albums. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, I've been preparing. Well, she's only she's only had like one hit, so it shouldn't be that hard. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. So Heath, how have you been, man? And what have you been into? Every time you're on, we're talking about metal and shit. So <laughs> I uh, expect nothing less. So what have you been listening to? What have you been watching? Mm-hmm. You know, let's get into it. Um. So recently, I've just been spending way too much money on records. Okay. So, what have you been buying? What um, have you been I bought the uh, the new Ulcerate. Okay. Record, Stare Into Death and Be Still. <laughs> it's uh, probably the best metal album from last year. The name of that, what's the name of the album again? Stare Into Death and Be Still. <laughs> That's so fucking awesome. It's pretty killer. Also been listening to the new Gate Creeper EP. The, Gate Creeper is one of those bands that I've recently, so the Power Trip news bummed me out like For sure. quite a bit. Like the lead singer dying pretty much out of nowhere and stuff. So Gate Creeper is definitely one of those bands that's, Without using a pun, but kind of using a pun, creeped in to my musical mm-hmm. kind of uh, vocabulary. Yeah, awesome. yeah, they got some good shit, man. But mm-hmm. they've, they're definitely filling that void. But also, just been uh, getting more into comics. Sorry for uh-huh. all the big comic book fans out there, but I just finished the uh, first book of uh, Preacher. Ooh, so it's so killer. Oh yeah, it's awesome. Very very offensive. Uh, very yeah. western with uh, kind of Tarantino esque. Mm-hmm. Like I think Kevin Smith even says that in his introduction of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, big 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 shit. Uh, that that comic series is a fucking masterpiece, man. Yeah, 
the first one, it was, it's already my favorite comic I've read. So I had just finished Gideon Falls Volume 1, and I wanted to review that with you. Okay. Like, at some point. Like, not yeah. not on this Today Show, but maybe for a YouTube or something like yeah, that. Gideon Falls is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, so, and, and Producer Kate, what have you been watching? <laughs> How is okay. how is uh what is it Spy Island? No, that's uh Love Island. Listen, Spy I've, Island would probably be better. It probably would be. So I've exhausted <laughs> all of the dating reality shows that exist. I'm pretty sure. So I've turned to a scripted show Yuck. about the production of a show oh like the. Oh my Bachelor. fucking god, dude! It's called Unreal. It's actually good. What um, have we become as a society? But anyway. <laughs> I don't care what you so say. So wait, hold on. It's, it's called the behind un- the scenes of... So it's a scripted show. It's like a scripted drama about like the pro- the people who produce shows like The Bachelor. And they make it like really oh seedy and effed up. Because they manipulate these women into doing things. and. So it's like... It's- med- uh, I'm trying to like wrap my brain around it. So it is a scripted show about an unscripted show. About what's supposed to be a dating reality show, like the ones I've been watching okay, a lot okay, lately. Okay. Um, I don't know why I'm on this kick, but I am, so I'm just going to write it out. You're a reality <laughs> fan. Like, you're a reality TV. That's why we had a reality TV president. I did not. Oh, my God. Anyways. <laughs> so, the movie that I chose this week is the sexual, highly sexual, sexy, beyond sexy, 1980 thriller, Dressed to Kill. Directed by my favorite director of all time, Brian De Palma. This is starring Michael Kine. Michael Kine. Sir <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Kine. Interesting accent. As uh, Dr. Robert Elliott slash Bobby. Angie Dickerson as Kate Dickinson. Miller. Dickinson. Yeah, Angie Dickerson. <laughs> Angie Dickinson as Kate Miller. A pretty good looking Kate Miller. I just who, want to say, did you know she was 49 when she... Yeah. 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 I saw that too, yeah. She looked yeah. great. Another person that looks great is Nancy Allen, <laughs> who plays Liz Blake, who I have a huge crush on, but she's also in Carrie, Blowout, RoboCop. She's kind of a genre, you know, favorite. Carrie and Blowout being uh, two other De Palma movies. Children of the Corn, the <laughs> sequel to Children of the Corn, Dude, like 2000. so fucking killer. <laughs> Have you ever seen Children? I think it's Children of the Corn 2 where the kids throw that chick in the wheelchair through the diner. Oh, my God. Dude, it is so fucking funny. Anybody out there that's listening, I think it's Children of the Corn 2. There's a chick on a motorized wheelchair, and they pick her up and throw her through the diner window. (laughs) It is so fucking funny, dude. Music composed by Pino Donaggio, and he uh, actually did work like... On some giallos and stuff like that, but he has he does some good shit. Like he, I think he worked on Don't Look Now, which is another classic from the seventies. Carrie, The Howling, Body Double, Body Double was another nineteen. Like these these movies always remind me of Gonzo, because Gonzo was like, oh man, that movie is so hot. Like when we were talking about Body Double, <laughs> <laughs> Body Double is another De Palma picture, by the way. So synopsis for this movie: A mysterious blonde woman kills one of the psych- psychiatric's patients, and then goes after the high-class call girl who witnessed the murder. Dressed to kill. Okay. Not to be confused with the uh, killer Kiss record, Dressed to Kill. Ooh, 1974. Right. I was just wanting to get on another Kiss tangent. Just to <laughs> ooh, I got a Kiss shirt on right now. I won't yeah. allow it. Dressed to Kill uh, has a uh, what's the rock big... and roll nights oh. on it. Ugh. Oof. 
I said I won't allow it. <laughs> okay, in, in true De Palma sleazy style, my connection with this one, as I've detailed before on the podcast, it started with Scarface is where I kind of got onto the De Palma train. And then uh, I kind of went back from there to his more trashier offerings, if you will, and fell in love with this director. Um, De Palma is one of those guys that wears his Hitchcock inspiration on his sleeve. With this one and similar, his similar other movies as, as like, this one falls in line with like a psycho. It's like mm-hmm. a psycho of the 80s. Body Devil, of course, is about a guy who witnesses a murder and where rear window. And then uh, you have his other movie, Obsession, which... Uh, oftentimes mirrors or straight up mirrors vertigo but it also captures some of the same feel of the times of the uh, the awesome giallos coming out during that time period in the 70s before that the bird of the crystal plumage four flies on gray velvet and blood on black lace i think we watched so suspiria has some giallo influences like a black gloved killer is what i'm kind of getting at so fast facts As a young man, De Palma's mother encouraged him to follow his father around with recording devices and stuff to see if he could catch him with another woman. I actually thought that was very solid and very awesome parenting. I wish that my parent, I wish that my mom would have done that with me. But you can kind of see that in a lot of his films of like that voyeuristic attitude that De Palma, like you're always watching women take showers or like following a woman around the museum and stuff. But you can kind of see that in these kind of movies. In the fantastic shower scene, which opens up the film, that's very important to the plot and extremely important to the overall film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> producers urged the 48-year-old Angie Dickinson to play that to say that that was her nude body. Of course, it actually was an uncredited Victoria Johnson from Penthouse who had who had to dye her pubic hair because she was a redhead. So just fast facts there. In the 70s, this is a little trashier fast facts, okay, because it's De Palma. In the 70s, Brian De Palma wrote a screenplay based on Gerald Walker's article titled Cruising about murders in a gay underground New York City scene. This was, of course, adapted by William Frankton and starring the incredibly good-looking Al Pacino in 1980 as well. (laughs) Both movies came out in 1980 to a lot of criticism for, you know, dealing with their subject matter and stuff. The flirtatious scene between Angie Dickinson and the mystery man lasts damn near nine minutes with no dialogue spoken, a very cat and mouse scene. Mm -hmm. This scene particularly shocked and shook producer Kate. I think she called and said that it was like one of the hottest scenes she's ever seen in the history (laughs) of film. Lion. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We touched on this uh, a bit last week, but the erotic thriller like this, this uh, sexualized kind of sleazy thriller is Horhos Trav's, one of Horhos Trav's favorite subgenres of movies, period. Like, I love this kind of shit. I love fear. But that concludes my notes on the film. Josh, what is your initial reaction? I enjoyed it. I thought that, and you kind of touched on a few points I was going to hit on right off the bat, but it was uh, very, you could tell the Hitchcock influence for sure. Mm-hmm. The scene just to start off the bat, like the one with the guy where she's following the mystery man is just, and that's the thing. There's no dialogue or anything. It's very mysterious, very, very eerie. I mean, most people, if you're not into movies, you would be like, this is boring. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But like, this is like, if it's a certain people with a certain taste for movies, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a big movie buff, then this movie is probably going to be right up your alley. Right. Because Mm -hmm. it's, 
I saw some different reviews. I, I, I read some reviews after watching it, and one review said it was the first great movie of the 80s because it came out in 1980, right? Mm-hmm. But then, uh, what's the actress that plays Liz? Uh, that is Nancy, Nancy, uh, Nancy Allen. Allen. Yeah, She got an award for worst actress of the year <laughs> that year, but <laughs> everybody, there were some critics that were saying that it was the first great movie of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So that just goes to show you how like you can't pay attention to like critics or anything like that because... And then, like, on Rotten Tomatoes, it's, like, 80% like review, like, positive reviews. So, I don't know. It's just weird to see how times change and how, you know, everybody says something sucks when it first comes out. And then 15 years later, they're like, why can't we have movies like that anymore? That's just, like, the nature of the beast. The thing from 1982, everybody, like, blasted it when it first came out. And it basically wrecked John Carpenter's career. Like, Mm -hmm. he went on to do, like, uh, Christine and stuff just because he like couldn't do original stuff like that you know right off the bat anymore but yeah it is funny how like something that doesn't necessarily come out to critical acclaim gets rediscovered and stuff throughout the years for sure producer kate was this your second time seeing this it this is like or? my third or fourth okay hard to say big fan huh um, yeah, I really do like this movie mm-hmm. a lot. It's um I don't know if I would say it's one of my favorites, but it's certainly up there. Mm-hmm. Um I'll watch it however many times anybody wants to watch it. Like I'll never say no. You watch this all the time? No. Like by yourself? Yes. Or? Yeah, that's what don't I was asking. Be, Big fan. Don't be <laughs> dirty. Um so where does this stack up with fear? Like how do you think that This is way above fear for me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. <laughs> was it Michael Kine? Was it- <laughs> I I don't know. If it's any one character, I just think I really, I like the subject matter. I think it's like problematic in today's, like through today's lens in a lot of ways. But it also, I think, purposely was bringing them up and putting a microscope on them for you to, and society, I guess, to like have a discussion about why it is we think this way or why it is, why, why it is we react, for instance, when a woman is brutally murdered the way mm-hmm. we do or raped or whatever. Um so yeah, we can get into those like bigger themes. I I love like the way he plays with like doubles and mirrors and twos, mm-hmm. and there's some really cool shots. And frankly, like Josh brought up one of my favorite scenes, which is the museum. The whole museum scene from start to finish is one of my favorites. And normally, I, I'm a person who's like, get on with it. With a lot of movies who try to do things, a lot of movies and directors who like try to do scenes like this, but they don't do it well, in my opinion. Like, this one is just really well done. It's like her just kind of sitting there and people watching. You can put yourself in, in that position and be like, we've all done that, right? We've all just sat around and kind of people watched a little bit. And she's clearly there because she wants to have an affair with somebody. I was about to say, I don't know if we've all done that or not. No, not that. But I mean, just she's... I love how they just took their time just showing her, you know, surveying, like watching the family and the little girl and um mm-hmm. watching the couples and like kind of longing to have a connection because obviously she's with a guy who what she said gives her wham bang specials and like so she <laughs> just doesn't have a real connection with him sexually right you know and she's on the hunt for an afternoon fling right and and then i love how it like starts off so calm and then it just gets like kind of frenzied as she's following this man through the maze of the museum and they make i don't know i just feel like it's really well done there's like glove flirting so like that i don't so, know okay so why did she take off her glove because there was some discussion online about that it's like the cinderella thing she wanted it returned to her right mm, right no oh well, that's how i interpreted well, it. well i think you couldn't interpret it that way so in like i don't think it's a victorian era i looked this up um yeah, because 
I've read a lot of books, seen a lot of movies like that are uh, period pieces where there's a lot of like glove action, right? And so there actually was a thing back then called glove flirting. And so glove different action. different ways that women use their and men use their gloves meant different things because they couldn't like overtly flirt with each other back then. It was like just inappropriate, right? It was not. It was improper. So I, I have a little list. I can tell you some of them. It's like biting the tips of your gloves meant like <laughs> I wish to be rid of you very soon. For instance, you can say like good things, good things and bad things. Dropping your gloves, if you dropped both of them, it meant I love you. If you dropped one, it meant yes. Whoa! Um, Is that how you picked up Carly? You, could you wore <laughs> those gloves. Yeah, you dropped them. <laughs> so you could hold your glove in your right hand with your naked thumb exposed, and that meant kiss me. It's like they they literally couldn't say things. Like, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So they did these little glove flirting moves. I just wore Rob Halford style gloves from the 80s. Yeah, there's a whole list of other things they used to do, but I think it's also important to know that one, she's wearing all white and the gloves are white as well. And the whole white, she literally takes the white glove, like her purity, her, I don't know, her innocence, whatever, however you want to put it. Her, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fidelity. Right. Um, she takes it off. Right. It, and I also read she took it off to show him her ring as in like I'm married, this will be like a quick fling kind of thing. It could have been that. Yeah. And she could have done it forget and she forgot to take her ring off to begin right. with. Because I think she noticed it and was like, Oh shit, I got my ring on. Right. Um, so I think she meant to like kind of show that she was single but she forgot she had a ring on and then he went away and she's like, Oh no. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there was I love all of the cat and mouse and the whole just vibe of that whole scene is cool too. Technically, me. she took both gloves off, so she does love him. Well, Outside, no, she so she dropped one. Just joking, but she threw the other one down, and I t- and so gloves back then you could like give your glove to someone. It was like an invitation. So like, there's a glove waiting for you. She all. leaves her her glove for him, which is like, yeah, let's do it. Right. Um, you could interpret it that way, whether or not it was intentional. But um, so he has her glove, and he's waving it to her, and that's a that's an invitation, and then. Um, I guess technically the one she threw down on the ground that the killer took is like an invitation. To so did kill you, me. I don't know. So I wanted to ask you: Did you see the killer in that scene? Did well, I see the like killer? when she leaves the museum? You can see uh, Michael Caine. Oh, Bobby! And, you can yeah. see Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. So the the well, I've seen it pans, a lot. So. <laughs> the camera pans like when she's walking to the taxi, and this like happens. The guy's like uh, kind of waving the glove, like he's sitting in the taxi waving the glove, and the camera pans, and Michael Caine's like standing there with glasses on, like with the blonde wig, mm-hmm. and he then he I did of not course, notice that. Yeah, so, yeah when so, he's like in the background in like several scenes, like yeah, there's a couple other other scenes too. One in particular that when you watch it, knowing the twist, uh-huh. it takes on a whole different meaning the way they acted it. So like when he goes to see the psychiatrist and stuff. So this is kind of a simple plot, but do you want to like it for people who are like trying to piece this together or whatever? Mm -hmm. Do you want to just give like a breakdown, a simple breakdown of the plot? Sure. So you meet this woman named Kate Walsh. She's um, got a teenage son who's like a really nerdy um, inventor kind of kid. He's just really smart and he can, he's crafty Mm -hmm. and she is with a man called Mike, who is like her boyfriend. It's not the kid's dad. Um, and Mike is not fulfilling her sexually, emotionally. Like she they, she goes to therapy and that's where you meet Dr. Elliot. So she goes to, is going to therapy to kind of 
talk out her issues and her frustrations with her marriage to Mike and the lack of, like I said, satisfaction she's getting in the bedroom and beyond. She is like, we just talked about the museum scene. She is Mm -hmm. just had it and she's ready to have sex with somebody and have a, a sordid affair, like just a little fling to get out of her system. Right. And so she goes to this museum, picks up this man, total stranger, uh, goes back to his apartment, has sex with him all day long. And then she <laughs> starts in the cab. Yeah. Like in the backseat of the cab. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very sexually charged scene. Like there, right. I think he goes down on her in the cab, just leaves her underwear. She's acting like a, you know, a girl in her 20s who's just like throwing, you know, caution to the wind. Right. And so she goes to his apartment, has sex with him all day, uh, <laughs> is leaving him a note to say basically like, thanks for the great afternoon and finds out that he has syphilis and gonorrhea. <laughs> yeah. um, which I thought was a very like De Palma, like, yeah, I don't know, just to like fuck things up. Scene. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. She can't just have like a nice afternoon. Right. And it has to end with all this like stress. And then she is like just trying to rush out of there. She forgets her ring. So she's in the elevator. You think like it's possible she could have, you know, gotten out of there alive if she hadn't left her wedding ring. So she had to go back up in the elevator and who jumps in there to slash her. But this tall blonde woman in sunglasses and a big sort of overcoat Mm -hmm. um, and slashes her with a razor and Nancy, or not, her name's not Nancy in the film, it's Liz. So Liz is like a high-end escort prostitute. And she happens to be in the hall as, you know, Kate Wall, uh, Kate Miller, what's her name? Yeah, Kate Miller. Yeah. Is being murdered. She's not quite dead, but she she catches a, catches a glimpse, glimpse in like the reflection in the elevator of the tall, blonde, sunglassed woman who is killing her that look always creeped me out too yeah she's like not look of this killer yeah she's not able to save her but you know she's like call the cops she grabs the razor it's, it's a whole thing um and so she's the only witness to the crime and she also fits the description of the killer that is the major setup and so she is talking to the detective the detective's like i can't my hands are tied i can't do this i can't do that and um <laughs> the detective is me in this movie dude. he's so sleazy so and like I'm going to avoid talking about big themes that related yeah. to what he says and how like that he introduces. We'll talk about it later. But basically he's not really doing much cuz he says he's waiting on warrants. And so he's like, "But you, you got to clear yourself because if I can't find out who actually did it, I'm going to pin it on you." Mm-hmm. And so she has this pressure and of course the son is trying to find out who killed his mom too cuz he sees the detective into his shit. So they team up, you know, in very unlikely little partnership. <laughs> bizarre, yeah. Um, they team up and they're trying to find out who the killer is, right? Because mm-hmm. like they have deduced, and so has the cop essentially, that the killer is one of Dr. Elliot's patients, or so they think. Um, and so they need to get in there and see his books. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of things happen. There's a lot of chasing. You find out there's lots of, you know, blondes chasing her, I guess. <laughs> and... Um, Oh, do you want me to t- say the end? How it no, ends? we'll talk about okay. the end here in a little bit. So yeah, that's that's the basic plot of the movie. Is like yeah. it's their sort of race to find out who did it and not get killed in the process. Now, Josh, before we talk about the ending and stuff, did did you were you able to figure out like 
because I read different stuff online. Like people found out who the killer was. Like, I thought it was pretty easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty easy. As I looked over s- at Carly and I was like, "It's it's the doctor." As soon as you see that thick blonde, like that's six <laughs> three. Well, he, you could just tell by like how creepy and weird he was. But like, yeah, he's he's the guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Sometimes you can just tell. You yeah. Know? Sometimes you just tell if they're creepy. Mm-hmm. And just the way that he was like, "Oh yes." Oh, yes. And the way he says, oh, yes, I'm like, yeah, that's a killer mentality. When, <laughs> Nobody uh, says, oh, yes, like that. When Angie Dickinson is asking if he's attracted to her and yeah. stuff. Are you talking about, okay. And he does it at the end, too, mm-hmm. with uh, Liz. Now, some of those scenes, do you guys think that the, he was actually attracted to them? Because yes. I wanted to get your guys' opinion on that. Yeah, yes. he was, for he sure. Was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or like half of him was. Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's I... why he lashed out, because he was trying to suppress that side of him, the... Uh, mm-hmm. The, yeah, the female. That's what the psych the psychiatrist at the end says, and like the, his breakdown of what happened, which is problematic. But oh yeah, it's like he he didn't do these things. He didn't have these impulses because he is trans. Mm-hmm. He had these right. things because he has two personalities, one unaware of the other, that are at war with each other. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a different diagnosis than he's just trans. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, which I think that's kind of, De Palma seems like he was trying to kind of point out the differences between those two things and how psychiatry back then especially used to get those things wrong um because by showing the donahue clip mm-hmm. so that was like a real donahue clip i don't know if you guys have ever watched Mm-mm. donahue's show back in the day or like have ever watched so anyway donahue is like a super liberal guy um and he had that that was an actual trans woman he had on the show just to try to expose america to that trans people are legitimate and like this is not some kind of weird right you know sex fetish thing because a lot of people think of them as like these zoo animals or something and and they're not like that and i think that's what his intention was right and the the point in that clip like he was making was like uh that he had served like in war and stuff and he had Mm -hmm. done very like quote macho things like as the reporter put it as donahue put it but yeah Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to ask you guys this before we get into the themes and stuff and like kind of break them down. Is this movie not like not is this movie canceled, but is this movie <laughs> problematic for 2021? And can we like still enjoy like sleazy things like these types of movies? Because one of the things that we we brought up last week with fear is like, can we still is there room still for these kind of movies like these kind of sleaze ball? Like because it is sleazy. I mean, I'll give De Palma a little bit of credit like you're giving him like you know he was trying to bring up topics but De Palma is a very exploitive uh, am I saying that right exploitative yeah. exploitative director like he is he always has been like that's just his his bag like he he is that very much that type of guy but Josh what's your opinion on that like as far as like can these movies still be made like could this movie still be made today I'm not sure I think you have to look at it from you know two different sides which yeah, obviously, it's a movie and it's fiction, mm-hmm. right? But then again, there's people who, you know, could take offense to that. You know, people who have gender dysphoria or, right. you know, stuff like that. And this could paint the picture that, um, you know, if somebody portrays it wrong or back in 1980, people were probably like, oh, yeah, if you're if you're this way, then you're crazy and. Um, you could end up doing something like this, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you're just constantly on the yeah. verge of snapping and murdering people. Mm-hmm. Which, as we all know, as smart folks, that these are, you know, just people like us and people, you know, who have their preferences. And, you know, everybody has their preferences. And, you know, 
it's it's a real thing right so gender mm-hmm. dysphoria is a real thing and we know that nowadays but you know back in 1980 people were you know ignorant to that fact mm-hmm. and i think you have to be careful how you portray people nowadays because especially in i guess it's always been this way but people are really easy to judge based off what hollywood does and people portray people with how they portray hollywood right so mm-hmm. Um, how they look at people that are portrayed in Hollywood with uh, that are transgender in this movie and they turn out to be a psycho killer that kills when they're, you know, uh, cross-dressing. Um, yeah, people could get the wrong idea. So I think you have to be pretty careful. So I think there's not really a straight answer. That's really, really well said, though. And it, it, like, and it is a legit question from, from me, though, because... As like um, my brother and like other fans, you know, of this this type of stuff will, it's something that I grapple with quite a bit because I do like fucked up stuff, like whether it's metal with Cannibal Corpse, like stuff like that, like Butchered at Birth, the album cover and shit, mm-hmm. which not everybody would be okay with, you know, <laughs> like wearing a yeah. shirt around that says Butchered at Birth. But Katie, what's your opinion on that? Uh, okay, so do Butchered I... at birth, not the uh, topic that I asked. No. <laughs> Shut up. So I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think if someone made this movie exactly the way it's made. Right. Now, <laughs> I think it would 100% get canceled. Yeah, for um, sure. And probably deservedly so. There are certainly some things that they could do differently to bring it into today and make it so that it's not perpetuating like really horrible stereotypes about a whole like population of people mm-hmm. um for instance the psychiatrist who is a person of authority on matters like this right saying like oh it's because he was transsexual like no mm-hmm. like that scene that whole scene could have been done differently i don't know it's a fine line you're gonna have to walk about like take exploiting a mental someone's mental illness knowing yes. lots of other people have that mental illness in real life and are going to take yeah. it take offense to so, it see that's another thing yeah, is a lot of people that are ignorant portray gender dysphoria as a mental illness. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm and, talking about the whole yeah. dissociative identity disorder thing because this guy has multiple personalities. Right. It's not just like, it's not like trans people aren't two, two a man and a woman trapped in a right. one body fighting mm-hmm. each other. That's different. I felt like the scene at the end was totally not needed and overdone. Like where the scene where the doctor's like, when he gets an erection, Bobby comes out and like all this other shit. I'm like, okay, that is like, that's yeah. too, f- I didn't need to hear all that or like see all that. I, I don't think it adds anything to the movie. I didn't need like the that. breakdown. Yeah. No. I didn't, I don't need the breakdown. Like it should have ended with him laying there or whatever. Like, yeah. or, you know, yeah. I think it's also important to say that it's not really up to us to choose if we oh, get offended sure. over it or not. Right. I mean, right. since, you know, Another good point. None yeah. of us, none of us in here are, you know, transgender, so we can't speak on behalf of those who are right. transgender and say, "Is this movie offensive?" Because you know, obviously, it's not up to us to decide that. Right, for sure. For you know sure. what I mean? Another so, good point. Yeah. I hate to be a person that says we have to like. I don't think art should be censored. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that, but I'm saying you have to be careful about how you portray certain things because. Like it or not, movies and, you know, a lot of Hollywood is put on a pedestal and people look up to that and people take a lot of that to heart because they're either dumb or they're just ignorant, right? right. And people forget that these are just movies sometimes and people forget that this is just fiction and we'll be like, well, 
in Dress to Kill, the killer was a transgender person, and then right. you get this whole per- ignorant perception of that. So I think you have to be careful about how you portray people in movies. And we've seen movies where there's just been, you know, it, where people try and just portray someone as a stereotype. And those are the kind of movies that, you know, are dangerous nowadays for sure, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, intention matters and messenger matters. Mm-hmm. I say this a lot. I don't know what this director's intention was or the scriptwriter's intention was. Maybe it was to bring up these topics. Because, I mean, there's another major theme that's also pretty problematic that we haven't even brought up. Yeah, and what I, I was about to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And that's... Um, Do you this, think this, this film is misogynistic? That's what I want to ask you. Is the film misogynistic? Yes. The f- whole film itself... I can't say. It depends uh-huh. on like you as an individual and how you're interpreting it. Because like right. Josh said, it's a it's a piece of art. Take it or leave it. And you have to decide how like what you're gonna take from uh-huh. what you're seeing and what you're what the characters are saying. Like, is it a blatant you know use of like stupid misogynistic things that society just has come to accept as you know fact? Like what I'm about to talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. or is the director again this gets to intent and messenger is the director trying to bring up this topic show the ugliness of it which happens in real life and get his their audience talking about it i don't know so that's up for individuals to say do i think that there's some problematic shit in this yes i don't know if he meant to turn it on its head or if he just did it because that's just what he is programmed to think Mm -hmm. um so the the big thing i'm talking about here is this whole idea that women are responsible for the impulses and violence of men. Mm-hmm. So Kate is killed. They don't know why. They don't know if it's actually a woman or if it's this woman's story that it's a woman who did it. Um, and the detectives, one of the first things he says is like, oh, well, she was looking for it. Well, what, why was she doing that? Why, why would you know? Why was she putting herself in this position? And it's oh, like yeah. so a woman, a sexually repressed woman, wants to have some sex, so she deserves to die. What are you? What are you actually saying when you point these things mm-hmm. out? When, when the, when your first instinct is to find out what she did to deserve to die, mm-hmm. what she did, it's the murderer who did it. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah. So this happens even like take this all the way down to even at schools. We do this to little girls. Right. We say that they can't wear certain things because the boys won't be able to control themselves or be, they'll be too distracted if you wear a spaghetti strap or leggings. Like we, yeah. we start kids young, little girls young, thinking that they're responsible for the actions and thoughts of men. And we're not. Um, and so that this movie kind of gets at that. It's like it's the what was she wearing mentality. Right. And yeah, yoga pants were a little distracting in school. Travis, don't start. You're going to expose yourself. Um, so I think <laughs> it's that. And then plus the whole the whole topic of, um, I mean, you see a dichotomy, right? You see Kate is this sexually repressed housewife. Right. And um, Liz, that's her name, right? Liz is this sexually liberated woman who doesn't mind using sex to get what she wants. Um, right. Whether it's money to manipulate men so that she can just look at their books, whatever it is, she's going to do it. There's a real difference there. And Liz is also treated like shit by the detective. Like she is a witness. She can help their case and they're treating her like just because she's, she chooses to sleep with men for money. 
Well, in the scene that I thought that was she weird. is some somehow less than everyone else. <laughs> the it scene... also turns out though that two women are the heroes of the movie. Yeah. Right mm-hmm. at the end, so it's the the cop that shoots Elliot uh-huh. and Liz, right? Who mm-hmm. you know puts them in the position to catch him. So I thought that was weird too, though. Like you know, Katie's right on everything, but then again, like at the end, mm-hmm. it turns out. So it's just like this weird, like you don't know how he's trying to, you know, portray anything. I guess, right? Yeah, it's straight My- down the middle. It like one scene that I thought was weird, and we brought it up earlier was. The fact that, and like I said, I don't know if De Palma was choosing to do this or not, but it was just something weird that I found was like, she chooses to step out on her husband and stuff, like for all the reasons or whatever. And then she finds out that the guy has like venereal diseases or something. So uh-huh. is that say, is that De Palma saying, oh, she stepped out. So she's wrong. And, and this, so that was weird to me. And then a, a part that I felt like he did really, really well and it's something that we brought up several times on this podcast is like authority figures, not believing women, like, um, when women are like in danger or whatever. And this is present on the subway scene when she's telling the cop or the security guard, whatever Mm -hmm. about the, uh, guys harassing her. And he's just like, what guys like, Oh, there's a blonde now. Okay. Well, who's chasing? Like he basically blows her off. Like she's crazy or something. Uh-huh. So I felt like that was a good way as well, like that De Palma was like, because there is a problem of authority figures not believing, you know, women when they tell them that they're in, like, uh, then when they're distressed or, you know, like when something's going on or whatever. Yeah. I know that you say this, this director is sleazy. You know him better than I would. I don't, I didn't even know that he made those other movies that right. you mentioned. <laughs> so like, but my take on this after seeing it a few times mm-hmm. is that I think he was a acutely aware of these things and that he wanted to, I don't know if turn it on its head is right, but he wanted to put a spotlight on it. Cause like, even if you just take, um, Dr. Elliot slash Bobby. So who is getting punished when he gets a rap, when Dr. Elliot gets that personality, the male personality gets aroused by women. The women are the ones being punished. The women Mm -hmm. are the ones being murdered Mm -hmm. for his impulses. And another woman, Bobby, is perpetrating that. Right. You know, she's the perpetrator as well. So, I mean, I feel like that cannot be an accident. Like, he right. had to have meant, meant for that to be a thing people talk about. And I'm not saying De Palma's a, a sexist or anything. I'm saying De Palma, he's well, he made might, some He probably sleazy, is. I think we all have He's said made some sleazy movies. <laughs> for sure. Or on purpose. I don't know. But Josh, so let's get into, so we've touched on some of the themes and stuff. Josh, what were some themes that you caught, picked up on like during this movie? I don't know if I really paid attention to picking up on themes rather than uh, the atmosphere that was, you know, mm-hmm. being portrayed, especially with the score. I thought the score was really the score well, is done, very well done, especially, yeah. you know, going back to, you know, what Katie and I talked about earlier with the uh, museum scene or the art museum scene. And, you know, when there's nine minutes of no dialogue, the only thing that can really give you some sort of, you know, reaction is, you know, yeah, like body the language and the propel you know, it forward. Yeah, propel yeah. it forward is the body language of the actors and actresses and the, uh, you know, the score really. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I thought throughout the entire movie that it was really well done. There were a lot of, like, Katie spoke about the mirrors too. I thought that was like a really eerie, like, touch on the movie as well how the movie like made you kind of feel throughout the, you know, the ebbs and flows of it. 
Um, it was really there was no real com- or comedic relief throughout the entire thing. So mm-hmm. you're just kind of you know I was captivated by the movie. I, I think I had a pretty good good idea at the beginning who the killer was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but I was interested to see you know how he was caught right there's a there's an excellent video it's it's short i think it's like two minutes and 40 seconds or whatever but it's de palma breaking down the museum scene and like his uh decision to keep that simple like what he calls like simple filmmaking and it's the music and he's like you're following around a beautiful woman and like you're exploring the space of the museum with the camera Mm -hmm. and that's like really all you need and you're just like like seeing the things that she sees and you're also like it like it's like you're just spending a little time with her and like yeah interactions and you know what whatever but yeah without saying anything you know all the feelings that like the gamut of feelings she's going through mm-hmm. and not i mean she does a great job acting that but i think the way it's shot like josh said the music itself is mm-hmm. so good i think the whole score to this is like pretty timeless which is why i think you can watch this movie and not feel like it's too dated. I mean, yeah. there's obviously things that date it, but like, it's not one of those movies where you watch it and you're like, wow, I'm in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So did you want to bring up some themes or do you want me to well, start I did. Themes? I brought up two pretty big okay. ones. <laughs> so, but I, w- I can talk about the twos. Oh, um, for sure. For sure. Bring it, up. They, it brings in a lot of doubles, I guess mm-hmm. I'll say. You have, Kate versus Liz, two blondes, one sexually oppressed, one one sexually liberated. They are like mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. You've got um, Peter and the detective. So Peter is like doing the most to find out who did it. The detective's doing absolutely nothing to find out who did it. Like, and he's just kind of this blunt instrument, whereas Peter's this more like savvy, you know, technically ad- like sort of advanced kind of guy. Anyway. Um, Wait, so you're just saying the detective wasn't? advanced uh, no <laughs> especially not in that like leisure leather leisure suit or whatever he's wearing um so what else i think i wrote down some other twos so you've got the two sides of the doctor dr elliot and bobby that they're obviously mirrors of each other um him this studious sort of ethical man with he's, you know, his moral compass is telling him no i won't you know my wife and no i won't do these things and i'm trying to be a good doctor and he cares about his patients um he even cares about bobby and bobby's like he suspects bobby of murdering people mm-hmm. um and then you've got bobby who you, the calls you don't were know. really weird yeah you don't know of course until the end um you have this like psycho female killer inside of him. <laughs> it's like that's another like very clear double. Um, you've got two blondes chasing her. She and you don't know again till the end that there's a blonde cop that mm-hmm. they may look just like the killer. Like why would they do that? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> and then yeah, there's you can just find it all over. You've got the two shower scenes as well. You've like you start out and they both are kind of the same right they start out almost sexual in nature and then they end with violence so what was the deal with and this is something that i didn't even pick up on even on this time viewing it but what's the deal with the early shower scene where the guy like pops up out of nowhere and grabs her mouth like what's the what deal do you with think it? was happening with that josh i'll tell you my opinion but I'm foreshadowing curious. right i just thought it was just kind of foreshadowing what was to come throughout the entire movie right do you um, think it was like a dream or do you think it was a sexual fantasy she was having as she's having sex with him? Was it like a rape fantasy or was it just a dream? Uh, I would say a dream. Yeah, see, I'm not I'm not really sure. Or is that like something that has... I, I don't know. 
Because wouldn't it be like they tie it all together, like the beginning and the end are kind of similar. So like, wouldn't they both be dreams, right? If they're trying to tie them together and make them similar because of the mm-hmm. shower scenes and then a dream sequence too. So mm-hmm. I would lean towards dream. Mm-hmm. What do you think, yeah. Kate? I'd, I'd lean toward dream, yeah. For sure. So it, as far as like the themes and stuff, what uh, one of the things that I wanted to point out as far as like your uh, like the twos is a lot of the split screens that De Palma uses. So he mm-hmm. uses the split screens a lot. You brought up the mirrors, like the use of mirrors. So one of the, my favorite scenes in the film is when she goes in the other room and she's like, you can put your clothes right beside mine. And he looks into the mirror and smiles. And I thought that was like oh. creepy as fuck. Yeah. It's like devilish kind of. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. I know something. Smile. Oh, yeah. So when this movie first came out, it was rated X and De Palma fought for the rated R. And in the rated R version, you don't see her or him cut her up the middle. And that is a very important thing if you thought you think about it, because he's basically splitting. It, it, it goes along thematically with the over some of the overall themes of the movies of the twos and of the splitting is him cutting her down the middle in the elevator. It's a very brutal scene. I just love this movie, man. But like, what were some of your guys' favorite scenes? I guess we can get on the favorite scenes. And I know we've mm-hmm. mentioned a few of them. I forgot to mention, I guess I said there wasn't very much uh, comedic relief. But near the end where she's describing the surgery and there's the old lady in the background that's just kind of like, like, just kind of like looking in shock. (laughs) About to faint. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I also could have done without that. That was very, um, like, we're going to explain to all you ignorant viewers. Yeah. How sex change surgeries happen. Mm Because y'all are stupid. Yeah. The old lady uh, in the background was the funny part of that. Yeah. That was funny. Um. Other than that, I think especially the scene or the, yeah, the scene where uh, she's luring him to, you know, she's trying to seduce him. And then all of a sudden he's, she's getting ready to get killed by the doctor. You're talking about Liz, or, right? Yeah, Liz mm-hmm. at the end. And you hear the bullet go, like you see the, um, Kate's son, right? What's his name again? I forget. Peter. Ooh, uh, Pe- Peter. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter's in the window. And then he's like somebody comes up from behind him and like cuffs his mouth so he can't say anything. And then the cop, you hear the bullet come through. I thought that was, see, that's what I was looking forward to was seeing how, you know, they caught the killer, even though Mm -hmm. I had an idea who it was, I was looking forward to seeing how they got the killer. And I thought it was cool how they had it as a, uh, a female cop. Um, like Katie said, blonde. So just everything keeps tying together. Yeah. A lot of red herrings. And I liked how they did that. It's just like that scene when, um, uh, the, and you find out it's the police officer, but they're following her in the car. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah. And he, he's on the phone in his office. So you're like, what the fuck? Like, how is yeah. that? Yeah. And I even forgot, like, I was like, how the fuck did they pull that off or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But Kate, what were some, some of your favorite scenes? So I really liked the scene where Dr. Elliot is, he goes to the psychiatric hospital because he's like, you've seen my client or I, I guess his client, my patient, that's the word I'm looking for. So you've seen my patient, Bobby. Um, he's talking to the other psychiatrist in the hospital. And he's like, this is what's going on. I'm really worried. Bobby's going to, has done something dangerous. Like she's killed a woman and I, she, she's really dangerous. And I just love watching that, having knowing who the killer is, like for sure. Mm-hmm. When you watch that scene the second time, or even the third or fourth, you just really notice um, 
the reactions of the psychiatrist that the doctor, Dr. Elliot's talking to, because he's looking at him like with this worried expression that's at first when you see it, if you don't already know it's the doctor, maybe Josh, you already knew this. Um, Too smart. Yeah. (laughs) But when you first watch it, you're like, oh, he's, he's looking at him and that worried look is because he's worried that Bobby's going to hurt another person. But you find out he's worried because it's doctor. He knows Dr. Elliot is Bobby Mm -hmm. and he knows Dr. Elliot is um, unaware of Bobby like they're these personalities don't know that they're the same person like in the same body Mm -hmm. um and so he's immediately you know you can see the wheels turning like i gotta call the cops i gotta like we've got to contain him but i don't want to alarm him by saying it's you and like putting him in a straitjacket right then and there you know (laughs) like he has to like kind of like tread this line of like not setting him off and sending him off the deep end but also trying to you know, keep him calm enough to go and save the day. Because the psychiatrist really is the one who helps save the day. It's not just the cop. Like, the cops probably don't know to be there if the psychiatrist isn't, like, have someone posted, have somebody ready, you know. There had to have been some cooperation there for him to... Obviously, the psychiatrist was at the station, you know, when it all went down. After it all went down, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, I just know. I really like the exchange between... Michael Caine and that that guy, I don't, I don't know the actor's name, but I mm-hmm. really like that scene. I feel like it's a little underrated scene because obviously it's like the elevator scene. I love the elevator the, scene is fucking spectacular. Yeah. The dream at the end where, you know, he strangles the nurse. That's <laughs> like, I jump every time I know it's coming and I jump just because the music mm-hmm. really makes you. Yeah. Um, but what yeah, about my, you, Trav? What's my favorite, favorite scene is probably the elevator scene. Like I love a good hacking. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's good. I love the white outfit and all the red blood. Like it's kind of well, and it's very classic. like it's very stylized, it's very stylish. Like like I like any of the scenes in this movie. Like I said, I like I like the the look of the killer in this movie. I think it's very 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 creepy, and uh, you see him quite a bit, like in a window or like um like in particular that scene when he's watching Kate leave the guy's apartment and he's like in the window of that door, like mm-hmm. he's just standing there watching her. Um, I always wondered how he knew that she was going to come back up there, but you know, that's just like a little minor plot hole, but yeah, I love the elevator scene and I love, love, uh, Josh brought this up, but I love the tenseness of the dialogue between, um, what's her name? Um, the prostitute Liz, Liz's character and the doctor at the end, because it's almost like he, he plays that off very well. Like he's a predator. Like, and we saw this like in signs of the lambs and stuff, but this dude is like, he knows when she goes into the other room and stuff and is looking for what she came for, he knows he has her exactly where she wants, he wants her. And, he, and like she Mike, thinks she has him exactly where she wants him. Yeah, absolutely. A yeah. It's a great fucking scene. And then the thunder going off in the background and stuff. But yeah, I love this movie, man. Like you I love lo- a close up of a shiny razor. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. My, Michael Caine, this is Michael Caine's best role by far. Um, <laughs> But Josh, one. do you want to give your kind of, is this your first De Palma movie, by the way? Probably. He made Scarface, Untouchables, oh, Scarface, Mission yeah. Impossible. Yeah, I've seen Scarface and Mission Impossible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you want to give your like final rating on the movie, final thoughts on the movie? Yeah, man. Like I said at the beginning, I enjoyed it. I, uh, I really enjoyed the score. I really enjoyed how the movie was shot. Um, He's a master, dude. Yeah, the movie oh, was yeah. very well shot and... Um, I thought the acting was well done. I mean, mm-hmm. I, like we said, like I said earlier, I read that she got an award for worst actress. Mm-hmm. But um, 
Angie Dickinson actually said that this was like one of her favorite movies that she ever did too. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a cult classic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I give it a four out of five. Yeah, I give it. A, <laughs> I give it a four point five out of five. Whoa. I really, I really, really like this movie. All right, I'll watch it anytime. That's all I have to say. <laughs> All right, so this would be, yeah, like a 4.5 out of 5. I love De Palma movies. This is probably one of my favorites by his. Um, Maybe we will have on Gonzo in the future. And if we do have Gonzo in the future, maybe we'll have Gonzo and Tiana on in the future, and I want to do a De Palma movie with them. (laughs) And it'll get really creepy. But I don't know if we'll we'll be able to air it or not. But it'll be so fucking fun to do, like, body double with them. Um, But... I love De Palma movies. It's just something about the way, like Josh said, the the some of the shots in this movie are just like beautiful. Some of the choices in, in this movie are beautiful. Like Scarface, all, every one of his movies is just has that De Palma flair. It's kind of like the Tarantino thing, where like you watch if you watch ten minutes of a Tarantino movie, you know it's a Tarantino movie. The same thing with De Palma. Like you watch ten minutes, you know you look for those little signatures, and you're like, that's a De Palma movie. But I love this dude. I love like his work, and I love Dress to Kill. But that's that would be my thoughts on the movie. Um, as far as book recommendations, so let me bring this up. So this is Are Snakes Necessary? It's a hard case crime written by Brian De Palma and Susan Lehman um, as afforded by Martin, Martin Scorsese. But when the beautiful young videographer offered to join his campaign, Senator Lee Rogers should have known better, but saying no would have taken a stronger man than Rogers with his ailing wife and his robust libido. Creeper. <laughs> Enter Barton Brock, the Senator's fixer. He's already gotten rid of one troublesome young woman. How hard could this new one be uh, turn out to be pursued from Washington, DC to the streets of Paris, 18 year old Fanny Coors knew her reputation and budding, budding career, budding career are on the line. But what she doesn't realize is that her life might be as well. So like I said, De Palma, a little bit creepy, you know, a little, a little there's always an house, element, <laughs> a little, uh, house of cards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's always an element in there that, you know, creeps it up a little bit, but so that's my book recommendation for the week. Uh, this is available at Barnes and Noble and you know, all the, it, it was actually a big release, but I actually haven't read it yet, but I will do so pretty soon because I'm a, in a big department mood. But Josh, I want to thank you for joining us. And this has been a blast talking about. For sure. Thanks for having me on again, man. For sure. And this concludes our uh, two-week talk of erotic thrillers, this and fear. (laughs) Kate, as always, thank you for joining me. And he's done. And you can find us at HorrifyingMF on Twitter and at HorrifyingMyFriends on Instagram and Facebook. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Fine, my friends.